You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, you lovely lot. I'm running a masterclass unraveling coercive control on December the 5th and 6th. So many of you have asked me questions about coercive control. So this is the place where you can learn much more detail about the offense itself, risk assessment and risk management, the effective police investigation, and so much more. Now it's a virtual masterclass, so anyone can join wherever you are in the world. Together, we'll deconstruct many cases, including Gabby Petito, Alice Ruggles, Sally Challen, and the Menendez murders. You'll also be able to learn about best practice regarding what an effective police investigation looks like, as I mentioned, risk assessment and risk management, as well as the practical points to prove the coercive control offence and law reform in different countries, including the UK, Australia and America. Together, we can prevent murders in slow motion. For more information and to book a place, email laurarichardspa at gmail.com. See you in the classroom, you lovely lot. He was known to some people as the man with the many names back in the 80s. And why do you have 30 different names when you have a furniture store and trying to sell furniture, right? Great question. Yeah. Investigative journalists like Tom Riddell continue to uncover more of Bloom's past. And they're shocked by the growing list of aliases and victims. I sometimes think it's enough for two lifetimes, right? It's like, when did he do all this stuff? Like, we have three Belgian women coming forward claiming uh, to have lost significant sums of money to this guy. I mean, that's impressive in a way that it seemed so easy for him. It makes you wonder how he did it, right? He, he walks into their lives and within two or three weeks, he walks out again with bags of money, like literally bags of money. It's crazy. And we are talking hundreds of thousands of euros. Uh, in some cases, yeah. 150,000, like, or two, like two bag, two plastic bags with 50,000 euros each in cash. In the 1980s in Luxembourg, Rick Blum began an affair with a woman called Monique. Monique, who has asked that we conceal her identity, became his lover. Following a chance meeting here, at the famous Café de Paris. She was a schoolteacher, and he was a man of mystery, masquerading, in her case, as a war hero. When I knew him, I told me that he worked in the English embassy as special agent. I believed it. So simple. She was married, but it didn't matter. He could talk, uh, it could talk in, in a way that every woman would have... Um, Melted? Yeah. And by the sounds of it, very smooth. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, he wrote, his family burned in uh, Auschwitz or somewhere. Huh? Lots of stories. Lots of stories. Until I found out that it well, were... Uh, Half were films yet, so uh, I, because I've seen so seen them. But he was convincing. He, he, very, very, very convincing. Did he yeah. tell you that he loved you? Oh yes, oh yes, <laughs> yeah. oh yes. He didn't ask for money, but he was about to steal something more valuable for him something he would later use to entice Sally's mum, Marion. So he took advantage of you by taking your husband's identity. Yeah. And, and then, down the track, Marion Barter... Yeah. ...became Mrs... This woman, Flora Bella Remarkle. Mrs Remarkle. Yes. 
and then he had disappeared. Ciao, vanished. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And this week, I'm really delighted to be joined again by my very special guest, super sleuther, researcher, and expert on family violence. Please introduce yourself again, Joni. Hello, Laura. It's Joni here from, from Australia. Yes, I'm very pleased to be joining you again on Crime Analyst. And we have so much more to talk about. This case really is just huge and it's so detailed. And when we last spoke, we talked about it being like this spider's web of the intricacies and each case and the history of Mr. Rick Bloom is extensive all on its own. But when you take Marion's case file as well, I mean, it's just vast in terms of behaviour and the passage of time and certainly questions that are still unknown. And you've been chasing down a lot of investigative leads, really, as I keep saying, doing the job of the police, which is just so incredible that you've managed to find time to do all of this, Joni. Yes, yes, it has been very much a huge endeavour. I was lucky for quite a long time there to work from home. So, and also not forgetting it went over, stretched over the period of COVID too with lockdown. So, Therefore, there was, as everybody else was, there was a bit of time there without the social sort of things that you needed to do and the family commitments and things like that. So in some ways it was fortunate. but And also, of course, just with the assistance of everybody else that has also um, researched and helped and provided information along the way, that has been a massive assistance too, of course. And also a tsunami of information to try to sift through to in a very short space of time. It's been amazing. An incredible journey. And I, and I think it's probably right for us just to mention that in Australia, over the last 10 days, there have been five murders of women that we know about by ex-partners, by men. And I was talking about it on Instagram. And I think it's really important to make it clear that these aren't rare cases when men kill women. This is actually a national and international crises. So Marion going missing and just everything that we've been talking about regarding coercive control, it's so important that people understand the warning signs and look for, it's not just about whether someone's been physically violent, which we said before, it's about the non-physical, it's about the entrapment and the financial abuse and the jealousy and need to control someone and with perhaps an, a relationship ending, this rejection where men cannot seem to deal with women saying, I've had enough of the relationship or I want to leave the relationship. And this male entitlement is such a huge problem. And I just posted about it today of Alice McShearer and so Anna Lynn Osias and Lily James, which lo lots of people have messaged me about Lily James and Titu Hong Nguyen and Crystal Marshall. You know, these are five women who were brutally murdered. And oftentimes I'm seeing people respond like, well, there was no history of violence. And I really want people to think about the psychological and the emotional and the coercive control and just this issue that we do have of men feeling it's their right to kill women or disappear women. It's really troubling. And I know in Australia, it's been in the national headlines. And there are so many women who've contacted me just to say how scary it is right now with this going on. Very much so. It's all over the news here, which is actually quite a change. And so I guess if I can just add here, there was also a woman killed right near me too about four months ago by the name of Marie M Vermont. Yeah, she was murdered in her home and then her home was set alight with her inside. Absolutely horrific. Yeah. It's really worrying. It's not okay at all. No, and it reminds me of Hannah Clark and her three children, Aliana and Liana and Trey, who were set on fire by Hannah's ex. And in fact, one of the cases that I mentioned was also a house fire. And it's just so troubling. And people look to just excuse, oh, well, there was no history, so therefore that's okay. 
rather than asking critical questions. And that's where I want to commend you for asking critical questions and not just accepting a narrative that someone puts forward. And you actually wrote to me to ask me my advice around you know, how best to think about and write about and demonstrate coercive control in Marion's case for the coronial inquest. And it was such a thoughtful email that you sent that it really caught my attention. You know, so thank you for emailing me and you explained who you were. I already knew who you were, of course. Um, And, you know, for me, the timeline and the victimology are just so key in Marion's case. And I replied to you and asked you about the timelines, but I also said if I were going to write the report, that I would highlight the similar fact and bad character using other women's testimonies about Mr. Rick Bloom and highlighting the victimology and how Mr. Rick Bloom coerced each woman to change their behaviour with these false promises, having isolated them, and that each time the only person who would benefit from this behaviour consistently was him. Because again, when you look at the power imbalance and what's going on, it's about well, who benefits to understand what's really happening. And I mentioned to you in, in that same email that I believed that he had escalated his behaviour. And with each woman, he was perfecting what I call his tradecraft. He was learning, as criminals do. They learn what works and what doesn't. But I just went back through that email and I said that these were power and control related crimes, but it was not just about the money. Not just about the money. And I also said that, and it's a blinding glimpse of the obvious, but I hadn't found any single piece of evidence that pointed to Marion still being alive. And that's another key piece to this, isn't it, with the coronial inquest of whether Marion is alive or not. And you considered the framework and you went off and you put something together. And what happened next, Joni? Because we are going to talk about each woman and, and just give an understanding for my listeners so that they have a, a brief understanding because each woman in their, in their own right, like Monique Cornelius, they have a big story to tell. And so I absolutely recommend my listeners listen to The Lady Vanishes and to the testimonies of each woman in particular. And we are going to talk through just some of the similarities and some of the differences. I guess, look, in relation to what I put together at that period of time, which was a little little while ago, I think there was some some reluctance or some struggle, you know, in the negotiations, in the submissions to sort of accept or or see that as something that was seen, you know, within this case. So there was quite a lot of discussion that needed to happen, communication, further explanation, giving of examples, because it's sort of not something you don't see a start and an end in this scenario, because you've got the end is sort of a bit open-ended. Yeah, it was quite difficult to sort of bring people along on the ride and to understand actually that if you look at it in this framework, then it all becomes quite crystal clear. (laughs) A lot of things that are confusing are actually not confusing at all. If you look at it in the context of a coercive control framework, things just fall into place. And I know, you know, not speaking for Sally herself, but I know that she did say, okay, one day she said, okay, I think in looking at that, that's actually really helped me to understand sort of and get my, wrap my head around what's happened with mum because I really couldn't understand why her behaviour changed just prior to going overseas, you know, why things were different. And now that I understand the man in the car at McDonald's, all those things, even the name change. So there is a bit of a settling with looking at it in this framework for her too, I think. Yes, and I think that's exactly why I changed the law in England and Wales, to give a framework, to give a language that is recognised in law for professionals, for practitioners, but also for family and friends. This just demonstrates even further why it's important that Australia criminalise coercive control, to allow for that framework to be one that is standardised across Australia, across states, And that is really important so that, Joni, the professionals like you and I don't have to battle away at educating people about this concept of coercive control, because it's at the centre of what someone like Mr. Rick Bloom does. If you take Marion aside and just look at his behaviour towards women, 
based on numerous women's accounts, women who had never met each other, women who lived in different countries. Yeah, 92-year-old women giving evidence at the coronial inquest who've never met any of the other women who knew nothing more other than their own experience. And what they testify to is a very similar pattern of behaviour. And although Mr Rick Bloom would say that it's because of the podcast, The Lady Vanishes, that's what he said at the coronial inquest, and we will talk about what he said, well, we can say categorically that the podcast did not exist before. The, I mean, it was 2019 when the podcast took up, but the podcast did not exist when each woman reported what he did, either to others in their family or and or to the police, right? That's right. And also the fact that all of the women that have come forward, they actually did very much contemporaneous reports to police at the time. So all of them were within weeks of that occurring. So it's not like they sat on it for two, three, four years and then decided to make a report. Some like Jeanette Gaffney Bowen, for example, she was within days. There's no disputing what the women have put forward in their in their individual police reports. Yes, and that's an important point. It's uncontested and what they've said has been corroborated by other people. And that's very important for people to think about. So let's talk, let's start with Monique Cornelius then. She met Mr. Rick Bloom, didn't she, in the early 1980s. And we touched upon her when we last spoke. But actually, Monique feels that she wasn't a victim. She had a sexual relationship with him. And she feels that she wasn't victimised, but I feel that she did have a lucky escape because she became alive to the fact she overheard him and realised that he had a wife and he had children and that wasn't the basis of their relationship. She had separated from her husband and we talked about Fernand Remical and of course that unusual name is what really led us all to Mr Rick Bloom using that name a very unusual name. But Monique characterised him as saying, well, he was fun and he was interesting and he spoke different languages and he said he was a spy. Yeah, that's right. Sounds wild, doesn't it, for him to say that he's a spy. But when you have somebody who is charming and is love bombing, I mean, let's just talk about the love letters for a minute that Monique talked about. I mean, one of the letters said that he wrote that she was a song in a man's testicles. Now, you know, it sounds like a wild thing to say, but he really did love bomb her and romance her and made her think that he was this spy. He had 10 passports, for example, different identities, and all of that played into her thinking that he was this spy. But when she found out that he had a wife and children, which he never told her about, that's when she realised he wasn't who he said he was. And so things took a very different turn, right? And she has a a very clear view of him now. Yes. And amazingly enough, I mean, I think as I sent to you, they they were living within two minute walk of each other. So in Luxembourg, Monique was literally around the corner from his wife and um, small children. I find that very interesting. You know, the risk of those two women running into each other is quite high So Rick Bloom and his wife Diane lived in close proximity. They were literally minutes away from Monique Cornelius. That's correct. They were living two blocks away from each other. What's your thought around that? I think probably if you look at the risk level, so that is quite a high risk to him, so therefore quite tolerant of risk. And I find that quite interesting in the context of Marion Barter being supposedly in Byron Bay for all of those weeks when she returned. And that was only like a 20-minute drive from where Mr Blum lived at that time. And that, that was in his backyard. If that's a fair comparison, I don't know. But I find that quite interesting. Also, the pure convenience I think, of having Monique and Diane living so close together. Monique lived there first. We've seen that through the the real estate records that we've managed to get a hand on. So Monique lived there first. So he actually, it appears that he chose to live there with his wife and family, which I find interesting in such a small country as Luxembourg. 
and it was a quite a long drive to his workplace from there. So why? Why why was he there and not down in the south of Luxembourg, right near his workplace? Yes, it's an interesting one. I mean, you know, I would throw into the ring that we go back to the 80s and if, let's say, his wife Diane was being controlled by him, maybe she wasn't allowed out and didn't socialise with other women and was busy with her children and maybe didn't have that time to socialise with others. And it was really principle of least effort. It's his selfish desire and therefore he dictates where he wants to be, relying on the basis that what are the chances of his wife running into Monique, and particularly if they go to different places. And I think Monique and Mr. Rick Bloom met at the, the Café de Paris, didn't they? Yes. You know, yes. Monique has a certain flamboyance about her. And also just in Luxembourg, I, I remember what Sally said, and it is true of, of people in Europe, but she said, when I went to knock on the door of uh, Monsieur Fernand Remical, he was sort of taken aback because that's not the sort of thing you would do in Luxembourg, just go and door knock. No. So culturally, yeah, yeah, yeah. there isn't this, and, and there still isn't this, everybody in each other's pocket sharing each other's business. And I think men like Mr. Rick Bloom fully exploit that to the max, that women don't tend to talk and culturally... You know, he relied on a, on a lot of things to make it work. And that principle of least effort, which means that he can walk from one house to the other and romance Monique and make her feel like he's not involved with anybody else other than her hearing a phone call. And then she realised and she said, I don't want to continue the relationship. I mean, he did threaten her. And that's also what I find quite interesting. He wanted her to sign a blank piece of paper. And when she wouldn't, that's when he got quite menacing with her. That's why I find it very interesting when she said he's someone who is very, very, very dangerous. He made her feel that way back then in the 80s. And she said he should be in prison and that he lies with an open mouth, i.e. everything that comes out his mouth is a lie. And he had said to her he had killed with his hands. I mean, this again, when someone says something like that, Joni, we know it to be a threat right? It's saying that you've done this. Therefore, if you step out of line, I am a, a serious person. I am a serious player. And when a man says that to a woman, what he's really saying is, watch yourself. Yes, yeah, certainly. And that, that has been repeated in the case of the other women too. And I guess we'll talk about that as we go along as well. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, you're experienced in family violence. Threats aren't always overt. They can be covert. And it can be past a look, for example. But I believe he said those things intentionally. And that's why Monique didn't want to revisit any of this. Because I think that's another important part, isn't it? She, she said that she didn't really want to go back into all of this because it was just too difficult for her. Because she did have depression afterwards. It really affected her, what he did. Yes, yes. I often wonder, Laura, when the Channel 7 team went over to Luxembourg, so... Of obviously they went and saw Fernand Ramakul and then because of the business register they they were able to identify Monique. So they actually phoned her. I sort of wonder at the time, I would assume that if Monique was on the end of the phone and an Australian news crew was calling her, surely in her mind something must have twigged because this was at least a five-year relationship so the last correspondence was in March 1985 and the first letter was in, in 1980. So that's a five-year relationship. So I sort of wonder whether there was potentially, if she did know, there was a bit of decision made then to obviously not disclose and she may have known and realised what the crew was talking about and yeah, I just sort of saw within her correspondence within the proceedings as well, there was very much a reluctance. I mean, obviously Monique didn't testify in the actual proceedings and her, her email correspondence, even in Luxembourgish, was quite reserved and just providing the absolute minimum um, of detail, I think. Yes, there seemed to be an overlay of, of fear, in my opinion. That's just my opinion, though. She doesn't mince her words when she says how dangerous she thought he was. And that comes from something, doesn't it? It's not just something that she's plucked out of the blue. So I think there's probably much more with Monique, her saying that she wasn't really a victim. And we talked about this last time, but he did steal her ex-husband's 
identity, and that is a very serious crime. And he did threaten her. They didn't travel overseas, but he wanted to um, sail on a yacht with her. And that's actually how they met, wasn't it? Sailing on, they started, uh, or they, they talked about starting a new life and going on a boat and sort of creating again this other sort of paradise, you know, of this wonderful lifestyle that they could go on together and that he proposed to her too. And then he disappears. So the vanishing is something that seems to be consistent with each woman, the wooing, the love bombing, but also the the promises, but then the vanishing, either being found out or getting what he wants or getting what he feels that he can get. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Here's Monique in her own words. I want you to listen very carefully to what she tells Alison Sandy about Rick Bloom and the relationship and what happened afterwards. That's why I did it, that no other women will be... He is just someone very, very, very dangerous, you know. Uh, that's also why I am, I, I'm working together with our Luxembourgish uh, police, the, the highest one we have here in Luxembourg, because I was afraid he would come and make, <laughs> and also he is capable of anything. He's capable of anything, even killing. Do you seem to know him more than anyone else that we've spoken to? I know him. I know him. Oh, yes. I know him very good. <laughs> his character, his reactions. And that's why I say he's a very, for a woman, especially for a woman, he's a very, very dangerous man. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. I can't, I can't tell you that. I lived it. He seemed to actually love you, which was bizarre um, because he... No, no, he loves money, nothing else. And for money, he has nothing but um, uh, a little... If he has little pension, or how do you call it? He gets from the state because he participated in a war and uh, with Australia, with I don't know in Asia somewhere, no? and his legs are, are are not good, not good for that. And therefore, he gets from the Australian state. I think so. I don't know it. I think so. A little, and that's why um, he's living with. Uh, his partner, his wife, yeah. I, I immediately left him uh, when I saw that he had a wife. No, 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 no. I didn't know he was a friend. In the, in the end, I didn't believe anything anymore. While I was taking in everything Monique had to say, I was still in shock that she'd finally decided to open up to me. And I was just waiting for her to pause long enough so I could return to the bombshell information she told me only moments earlier. What makes you think he's capable of killing? 
he told me. But I don't know who is uh, who he has killed. Patata in the one day he told me, look, these hands have already killed, and he showed me his hands like that. Yeah. Killing with hands only. There you must be a real killer. Why did he tell you that? I don't know. He told me. Very, very much. He, um, he did not manipulate me. I, I saw his manipulation. I, I saw when he, he, he lied or manipulated. But there are moments in life, even if he was only a friend, where the past makes you open the mouth if you think of the past. It was in an... A weak moment for him. I know you have provided letters and in the past you didn't necessarily want to be part, like just talk at the inquest. Do you think, because the inquest is still going, to try to get him in jail? Because he's not quite now, but he's 83. He's very feeble. He's very strong. He, he uh, is also, he is a master of the manipulation. He never, never never says the truth. Perhaps in a moment of weakness or... Uh, but he manipulates everybody. Everybody, he tells stories, 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 stories. Therefore I say, don't let him out anymore. That is for, for the sake of other women, that they don't live the same... Uh, Destiny. To me, he never did something. Never, never, never. Here, Monique recalls when she discovered Blum was married with children. He always was uh, good about me. But when I knew, we went to the uh, aeroport where the, the aeroplanes are landing and departing. What do you call that? Airport. How do you? Airport, yes. Um, he always went to the airport for phoning in Australia uh, to, his, uh, to someone to his... Now I know that it was his wife. And just like a hazard, I, I went in the telephone cabin just beside his... So I could hear on the phone what he was talking with that person. And I, uh, he talked about David Donkey's child. And he talked to um, a woman. And I heard that they were very close, very close. And um, after the phone call, uh, we went to drink uh, in a cafe. And I asked him, hey, um, who was the lady you talked about? Your child? Your child? Do you have a child? Is that woman? I didn't know it. He hasn't told me. Mm -mm. And yeah, you can have a child. I, I, I was always on my own. I, that was my salvation. I had my house, I had my job, I had my money. I didn't depend on him, on nothing. If I didn't want to see him, I, didn't, I told him, no, no, leave me alone. And we were not intimate, we were See, 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 oh, intimate. <laughs> That's, but um, I was free. I was always a free woman. And then did what I decided, not what he told me. <laughs> and that was my salvation, you know. He knows very good to speak. And he spoke, uh, he is very good in story telling in storytellers and that I know he told me he was a secret agent of the English embassy here in Luxembourg I believed it 
and I I studied. I am not fallen on my head. I am, well, I cannot say that I thought that I am very intelligent, but I am not idiot. <laughs> that is, that is a fact. Uh, and I did my, my life also alone. I have organized and, you know, I'm free woman. And that was my salvation. Oh, you know, madam, um, it was not easy to get rid of him in my, in my brain, you know. He is a personality you, you not meet in every corner of the road. Um, he is focused on getting money. And therefore, he is playing with the emotions of women. And that I am so disgusted of that. Uh, that is the last thing that I can understand from a man. He is rotten from the head to the tooth. Voila. That is only, I don't, I don't even know if he knows still who he is. I don't think so. He has something in his head. Uh, he's so rotten. Never seen a man like that. Uh, oh no, 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 no. But I had, uh, in the beginning, I trusted him too. He is a very good speaker. He knows the emotion of women. And um, I was not rich enough, you know, and I was young. <laughs> I was young when, uh, 40 years ago, I had 30, 35 years now. And I was alone, I was divorcing. For me, he was interesting. He takes advantage of, well, I guess women who are divorcing or widows. It seems to be his M.O., but you were the one who got away. Did he ever try to take money? Oh, yes. I got away. I got away. But because I was always, always a free woman. My free will was, is my character. I don't let someone else think for me. I think for me and nobody else. Voila. And that's, that's what saved me. And I want, when I read here the story of Miss Warner, I think, so, the lady who has two children. Marion Barter? Ayo Barter, it's Barter, it's Barter. Marion, Marion Barter. Oui, oui, voilà, c'est ça. She had money. Yeah. Of, of uh, women, he, he manipulates until they are depending on him and uh, they are not free, they are married or, or have, have no own job, no own house, or, uh, or they are older also. Also, I was young. I was 30 and 35 when I knew him. I was strong. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I can't understand the Barter, Marion Barter. Uh, I can understand her very, very good. Because he is a master of manipulation. And he only is playing with emotions. And if you are playing with the emotions of an as a soul, you, you have very, very, very possibilities to, to enslave him, you know, uh, the person. Yeah. Yeah. He, has, he can do that. He can manage that. Oh, my God. My God. Of course, Marion, we know, was after Monique, so 1997. And we, we will come back to Marion but we then had Jeanette Gaffney Bowen. And do you want to say a little bit about Jeanette? Jeanette had put an ad in the paper in Sydney. She was a childcare worker and actually a trained teacher, which is interesting too, because that's Jeanette. Monique was also 
a trained teacher and Monique actually started in 1974 as a kindergarten teacher too, just like Marion was. Jeanette also a kindergarten teacher and running a childcare from her home at that stage. Newly divorced, said that she was in a very, very bad place, um, that was her words, where she was looking for a friend, looking for friendship. She was attending a church, so she was a religious person. And yes, I think that probably receiving the correspondence that she did, knowing that he was French speaking, we actually do have the ad. We I located the ad that Jeanette put in, and she does mention there that she's a French woman. So I'd assume that that would have been something quite attractive to Mr. Rick Bloom at the time. There's a whole lot within that case that can be pulled apart such as her allegedly Rick Bloom bringing, cooking a meal for her and then also bringing a bottle of wine but only offering her the wine and he never drank the wine. And then there were photographs taken, salacious images were taken and then, according to Jeanette, they were to be used for blackmail. That was what she thought. Mr Rick Bloom actually did state that, yes, that did occur, but someone from the church came and picked up the camera. So again, the truth of the matter and where all these things lie, something to be determined, I guess. Well, I mean, when you look at it on the basis, you know, of why would she lie, for example? You know, having pictures taken of you, naked pictures taken of you and being threatened. I mean, that's something that I know a lot of women have not disclosed when it's happened to them because of the shame. So her coming forward and saying that that happened and having money taken from her. I mean, she said that he took 30000 from her bank account, but she had given him the pin to buy a fax machine for a business that he had proposed to go into with her. But he just took that money. And this kind of, in his mind, it was probably given to him. But in reality, he took it from her and then he threatened her when she refused to do the other things that he wanted, like sell her house. And of course, when we think about Marion, well, she did sell her house. And he did also pressure other women to sell their house. So what are the chances of her just making up this story about his behaviour and actually everything about the coercion and her trust in him, trusting him in good faith. I have no reason to doubt that. I have no reason to doubt her account, but I do have reason to doubt his. Like a third party came from the church and picked up the camera and it just sounds ridiculous. It just doesn't sound viable. No. And there also is cooperation with Jeanette. So I actually spoke to one of her ex-partners, actually the man prior to Mr. Rick Bloom, who was a private investigator himself. Oh, interesting. So she actually sent him up to Ballina to locate Mr. Rick Bloom. So I have spoken to that man and he corroborates everything that Jeanette had put within her statement, within her AVO. She was attempting to retrieve the funds by the use of her ex-partner who was a private investigator at the time. Okay, well, that's really important what you just said. Two things, the, the private investigator who corroborates her account, but also the AVO. Let's talk about that for a minute. She took out an AVO, did she? She did. So she took out an AVO. She said that she was scared of him. And she also said that she alleges that he was doing things to try to interrupt her childcare business. So she was getting visited by the Department of Community Services here with reports of gas leaks, with reports of smoky rooms, children sleeping from wall to wall in a very small room, you know, just unsightly and, un, you know, unsoundly business. So, of course, there's no proving that, but definitely within her AVA she said that and also in court that that had happened after. So, again, if it is accurate, then we have the threats and the intimidation and essentially, you know, if you are to believe what Jeanette has said, she lost just under $30,000 and it is to be noted that that was via a line of credit card. So she wasn't giving him cash he was going to a bank and withdrawing that money himself with her card. And then we have 
Colonial State Bank, Byron Bay, and money going missing, utilising of a card again. That to me is a rather interesting coincidence. Yes. So let me just clarify. So the 30,000 that wasn't taken out in one withdrawal, was that in multiple withdrawals? Yes. What would happen was, and this is in her statement, is that he would never take over the amount that she had allowed him to take. So they would discuss the setting up of the business. So he would say, I need such and such amount for such and such. And she would say, yes, go ahead and remove the money. So he would go and remove the money, but she would not actually see the goods, the fax machine, for example, the coins, the basic business setup that he said. So he would never go over the amount. She knew that he was withdrawing that money. But I just think it's very interesting that it wasn't Jeanette going to get the money and giving to give to him. He was doing that with a card in the name of Jeanette Gaffney Bowen. And he was a tall six foot male. And they were only involved for a matter of months. And how could he have possibly have gotten nearly $30,000 out of an ATM? So he would have to have gone into the bank. Yes. Well, this all tells me that he has the gift of the gab. He had the ability to manipulate, to get what he wanted, but to fly under the radar in the amounts that he took out. And that tells me that in that sense, he's criminally sophisticated. He knows what he's doing because he's done it many times before. And that's where I'm always interested in someone's criminal history. And everything that you've said just there is very insightful. And the fact that she did get an AVO out as well. Yes, it was a civil matter, but it also makes it clear that she was that concerned. They did have a sexual relationship of sorts, didn't they? And with some of the women he did and with some of the women he didn't. But with Jeanette, he did. Yes. Well, it's just a little bit confusing and interesting because I guess my view is that within the AVO, Jeanette did state that they were to be married. So they were going to be a couple. But on the stand, Jeanette said that that wasn't actually the case. And she can't recall where that came from. So I feel as though there is potentially like a stepping back of the exact nature of the relationship. And that was also how it came across in in the court too when she was being questioned was, I think, you know, she's of advancing age now. She's a, a believing Christian woman. Perhaps there's a lot more there than what we will ever know, possibly. Yes. I mean, let's not forget the age of the women. You're You're absolutely right to say that. And also just the... You know, the feelings, not, it's not just memory loss, but it's also the shame that things can happen to you and you put your trust in someone. You know, and if there were photos taken of her, that is something that feels very private and intimate. But I think it's interesting that you also mentioned the wine, you know, her being given a drink. And is that when these photos were taken? And it sounds to me like that might well have happened or... Again, her memory might be hazy in parts, not just because of age, but because of he may well have put something in her drink, not just the alcohol. Well, she did say as a quote, when she was with him, she felt out of space. And she did say, I wondered whether he had actually drugged me. That is within her statement to police. Interesting. I mean, it's very possible. And, you know, of course, alcohol has an impact. And if one's drinking and one's not, it sounds to me like he was setting her up in that way. You know, alcohol in and of itself can disinhibit. But if you add something into it, and if she said that she felt hazy, well, yes, that's something that only toxicology would be able to confirm. And of course, it was a long time ago. I want you to hear about the threats. Remember, threats can have a dual purpose. They can manipulate and control someone to do what you want them to do. And they can also prevent someone from reporting the abuse and from speaking out. I'll also share with you that in many of my cases, the coercive controller will also target the things and people that the victim cares about the most. Listen carefully to what Brave Jeanette shares about the threats and the AVO, the domestic violence order she took out in December 1998. This is what Jeanette Gaffney Bowen had to say. He blackmailed and threatened me. He wanted me to 
to do what he wanted me to do, like selling my house for the money. Miss Gaffney Bowen said Mr. De Hedeberry threatened to put garbage all over the garden and have her childcare business closed down, so she contacted the Belgian consulate to report him, and then she called the police. What was in your mind after he took the photos? What was he seeking from you? Money, that's all he was. He has been after all along. I got scared. I was becoming very scared. So I contacted the police. She sought an apprehended domestic personal violence order in December 1998 amid suggestions he threatened to get Miss Gaffney Bowen's family in Australia and overseas. After that, she said she didn't hear from Mr De Hedeberry again. However, the court was told that around this time, there was an anonymous complaint to the Department of Community Services about Ms Gaffney Bowen's home-based childcare service. It mentioned certain aspects of her house that only a few people knew, and Mr De Hedeberry was one of them. So that's all really important to know. He not only threatened Jeanette, he also threatened her family and her childcare business. No wonder she was fearful, and it really does take a lot to speak out when everyone and everything you love and care about are threatened and on the line. But I still think it's incredibly brave of her to talk about what happened and to put herself through that with all these women. I mean, to put themselves through it to shed light on his behaviour and hopefully help Sally discover answers for what happened to Marion. I mean, we, we really can't underline enough, I guess is what I want to say, of just how courageous these women are. And at 92 years of age, staying up in the middle of the night to give evidence when obviously your sleep is very important to you and two of them were giving evidence. So it really is commendable, particularly when Mr Rick Bloom tried to get out of going to court and in person, giving his evidence by claiming ill health. And I I thought that was very interesting, which we will come on to. But Jeanette Oldenburg, let's talk about Jeanette, 1999. She had a business partnership or what she thought was going to be a business partnership with him, didn't she? She did. She did. So how much of this do you want to know? Because that particular account of Janet's is very, very complicated and convoluted. (laughs) Well, let's say, I mean, all of these cases are, and that's why it's very hard to give them the airing that they need, because you could spend hours just talking about each woman and how Rick Bloom set his sights on them or how he answered an ad or how he created an ad. And But let's do some of the top lines with Janet Oldenburg. But that's next week, and I guarantee you won't want to miss it. Until next time, be curious. Ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude.